This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Tom Selby. On the podcast today, we'll assess what the latest jobs figures mean for the Bank of England's next interest rate decision and the risk of the state pension pushing more pensions into paying tax. Joining me today is Laura Souter. Hi, Laura. Hi there. So I'll be looking at the latest eye-opening figures on the level of scams in the UK. And we've got Investments Director Ryan Hughes on the podcast today. Hi, Ryan. Hello there. So he will be covering a bevy of investment news that we've got out at the moment, from the fallout in the property fund world to the expensive tracker funds that are costing you over the odds, but also what the latest UK government bond yields mean for you and your investments. That's right. And I'll be continuing that bond theme, not 007, unfortunately, in Pensions Corner this week, looking at whether those nearing retirement need to worry about bond yields. This podcast also marks five years since we started Money and Markets. Woohoo! Well, well done. Well done, both. That was such an underwhelming woohoo, Tom, but I'll take it. <laughs> but we just wanted to stop to say thanks to everyone who has listened, recommended us, or written in during that time. We really appreciate it. Tom, immediately after this, is going to be baking a big cake for all of us, I'm pretty sure, Tom. You don't want that. No, you don't want that. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Maybe a Colin the Caterpillar will be bought, but we'll uh, we'll see what I can do. But back to today's podcast. First up, Laura is in the market's hot seat this week. Exciting. So let's take a look at banks first. We had a few reporting this week, didn't we? Yeah, so Barclays was the first to report um, on Tuesday, and that was not such rosy reading. And actually, the share price dropped immediately afterwards. Um, so there was a big drop in profits that led to that drop in share price. The bank reported a 16% drop in third quarter profits to $1.3 billion. And it also downgraded its guidance on its net interest margin. So this is the key metric that banks are judged on. And it's the amount of money that they make between what they lend out and what they take in in savings. Now, generally, we think of higher interest rate environments being beneficial to banks because they can make more on that margin. But competition for those savings rates and also some pressure from the regulator means that this benefit hasn't proved to be that long lasting, hence them downgrading their guidance on what that net interest margin will be. Um, Customer deposits at Barclays actually fell by 6%. So this is a real sign that savers are willing to shop around and move to other providers to get higher rates. And often that is with the smaller challenger banks rather than the big name brands like Barclays. And on top of this, another problem that is plaguing Barclays is bad debts. So in a cost of living crisis, when people's finances are pushed, as well as business finances, you get to a situation where people default on their loans. And the bank has now set aside 433 million to cover expected loan losses in the business in the third quarter, which is higher than many had expected. And on top of all of this, the investment banking side of the business has also seen lower income dropping 6%. So all of that paints not a very pretty picture. And the chief executive hasn't ruled out more job cuts, saying that the bank is looking for efficiencies everywhere. And that comes on the back of cuts to hundreds of staff already this year. 
Okay, interesting. And we also had Lloyd's figures as well, didn't we? Yep. So they were next to report, but actually with a more reassuring update than Barclays and the market preferred their update. Um, unlike its rival, there'd been no downgrade to full year expectations for that net interest margin figure. Um, they actually surpassed profit expectations in the third quarter, posted pre-tax profits of $1.9 billion for the three months ending in September, which is more than treble the profit that it posted in the same period last year. Lloyd's is also doing better on Barclays when it comes to those bad debts. It had a pretty relatively upbeat forecast on the level of um, bad loans and and bad debts that were coming in. But I think the key question for investors is how long the company can continue to enjoy the benefit from the higher cost of borrowing, so those higher interest rates from the Bank of England, or if and when the strain on household finances becomes so acute that those levels of bad loans go up. Okay, so a mixed picture at those two banks then. Let's look now at those UK jobs figures that were out this week. What did they tell us? So I think the first thing to address with the jobs figures is that the ONS had already delayed them because it hadn't had sufficient responses to its labour forces survey. Um, So this is where companies report what's happening. Um, Even with this delay, it still didn't feel confident in the figures. And so what we've got is experimental data, um, which has flagged some concerns because as we'll come on to, these job figures are key figures that are pulled over by the Bank of England as part, one of the factors when they're making their decision about interest rate rises. Um, but that aside, the figures show a bit of a deteriorating picture in the UK jobs market. So unemployment rate rose to 4.2% between June and August, up from 4% in the previous period. Um, and over the same period, the number of people in work fell by £82,000. Over that same period, the number of people in work fell by 82,000. So that's pushing the employment rate down. The economically inactive bracket, which has been very focused on by the government and by commentators, the number in that bracket has risen and vacancy numbers have fallen again. So what we're seeing is fewer companies advertising vacancies. So what we've got here, I think, is a bit of a balance tipping from that robust post-pandemic labour market where employers were desperate for workers and advertising a lot of job roles to now one that's shrinking where companies are looking to cut costs or at least not take on new staff. And so I think uh, having seen 18 months of kind of pay increases, wage bills are definitely weighing on company margins where they've already been squeezed by other cost pressures. Now, we know that there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And so I think when companies are thinking about what the path for inflation is, whether we're at peak interest rates, what's going to happen with those interest rates and having seen their wage bills grow, it's not an environment necessarily where they want to add jobs. Um, But I think these figures do give a bit of an insight potentially into what the bank might do at its next rate rise decision, which is next week. So, Ryan, what are we kind of seeing out there in the market in terms of the expectation for that? So, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed picture, to be honest with you. If you look at the voting that the Bank of England uh, had last time round, where they didn't increase rates, it was actually very, very close. It was 5-4. Um, to not raise rates. So there are four people on the committee that still wanted to increase interest rates. Um, obviously not a majority, so it didn't go up. But there is a mixed set of opinions on the on the committee. And I guess that's reflected also in the market right now, where it's, it is quite an uncertain picture as to what happens with 
uh, with interest rates. If we look longer term, uh, then the yield curve, uh, which is a technical measure that shows what interest rate expectations are over time, uh, they are actually showing that the market participants expect interest rates to fall, uh, not immediately, but certainly uh, as we look into the back end of next year uh, and, and beyond. But what happens in the short term uh, is quite hard to say because the data is mixed. We've got stubbornly high inflation, which the Bank of England has been very clear saying it's trying to get down. But at the same point, we've got weaker data in bits of the economy, which would imply that we shouldn't really be putting rates up uh, right now because it might make it worse. So it's a really tricky balancing act that uh, all central banks, to be honest, uh, have right now. And we've seen bond yields hit the headlines yet again this week. So can you just give us a little update of, of what's happening there in that market? Yeah, I mean, probably the big headline figure we've seen this week is that in the US, the uh, the Treasury yield, so the yield on US government bonds hit 5%. So it's actually a reasonable amount higher than the yield on government bonds uh, here in the UK. And people are seeing that 5% figure now, it's a bit of a threshold, a bit of a, an important line in the sand uh, as as to what happens. Now, this is a, what we've seen is a rapidly rising interest rate environment, which has been yeah, not quite catastrophic for bonds because that makes it sound dramatic. But these low risk investments, as the textbooks tell us, have had a really, really tough time uh, over the last 18 months. So we've seen losses of 25, 30 percent. So that kind of turmoil that you see in the bond markets is all to do with interest rates keep on rising, keep on hitting these thresholds as investors demand more and more return for the risk of lending to to governments. Uh, Now, that risk isn't going away anytime soon because we know that governments are heavily indebted uh, in in the Western world uh, and the cost of servicing that debt is is high and increasing. And therefore, investors say, well, the risk of lending you money um, is, is even higher as well. So uh, I could probably equate it to, to lending the two of you uh, a tenner down the pub and trying to decide you know, which one is the uh, the greatest credit risk uh, to get that back. I'll let listeners decide on uh, who's more likely to pay me back or who I should ask for a higher rate of interest. But you know, these are the problems that investors have uh, right now. And uh, they, they are creating a huge amount of issues, not just in the bond market, but it filters through into every other investment because in essence, every investment that there is, is really priced off the interest rate, the rate that you can borrow money at, whether it's equities or bonds or uh, property. I know we're going to come on and talk about all of these things are, are impacted by higher interest rates and higher bond yields. That leads us neatly onto Tom's pensions corner this week, where someone wrote in saying that they're nearing the age when they'll take money from their pension. And they're asking whether they should be concerned about rising guilt yields and just that broader uncertainty in the stock market. So, Tom, what help did you have? Um, yeah, so a perfect primer there from Ryan, actually, to this question. So let's let's take it in two parts. So firstly, the the idea of stock market uncertainty. Now, now short term uncertainty or volatility is part and parcel of long-term investing, as I'm sure most money and markets listeners know. So you need to be comfortable with the investment risk you're taking and, of course, keeping your costs as low as possible while doing that. But provided that's the case and you are focused on the long-term, then a bit of uncertainty in the short-term shouldn't be a cause for concern and shouldn't create a need for you to do anything in particular with your retirement pot. Now, we're hearing a lot about 
bond yields recently, and Ryan ran us through it there earlier, and the potential implications for people's pensions. Now, we also, of course, heard a lot about them in the wake of the mini budget last year when there were some quite dramatic movements in bond prices and bond yields. So bonds are just, as a little reminder, IOUs from government and the yields, the return that you receive for holding that bond. So when bond prices go down, as we've seen recently, bond yields will go up. Now, for most people saving for retirement or taking an income through drawdown, shifts in the bond market shouldn't have a massive impact on them because they won't have heavy bond exposure. So it'll depend how much you're invested in bonds. But provided you have a diversified mix of assets that's invested globally, then shifts in one particular bond market, or indeed the bond market generally, shouldn't have a huge impact on your retirement pot because you shouldn't be too exposed to them. However, there will be some who are in what's what are often referred to as lifestyling or annuity hedging funds, which automatically switch you to government bonds as you approach your chosen retirement date. Now, that chosen retirement date will often be the state pension age, which is currently 66. Now, those funds have been based, they've been designed and based on the idea that somebody will turn their entire pension pot into a guaranteed income for life with an insurance company, so they'll buy an annuity. Now, the reason that that works when you're going to buy an annuity is because bond prices and annuity rates move in opposite directions. So the idea, the theory behind these these products is that as you approach your chosen retirement date, when the the fund assumes you're going to buy an annuity, you hedge against annuity rate movements. And so you lock in your retirement income. So if bond prices are going down a huge amount, that's not going to concern you because the annuity rate that you get on the end of that goes up. So that's how the hedge should work. But the problem is that the majority of people don't buy an annuity anymore. And so what you've got is quite a large number of people unwittingly left in a fund that's hedging against something they no longer plan to do. And as Ryan said, a lot of these people will now be sitting on pretty heavy paper losses. We might be talking a 30% drop in the value of someone's retirement pot. And if they don't plan to buy an annuity, then that's a 30% drop and they've got no idea when their fund might recover. Now, if you're in that position, it's quite frankly, a really difficult position. and There's not a huge amount you can do. No easy solution there for those people. You could sit in the bonds and hope they recover, but there's no guarantee that'll happen. You could switch to a more appropriate diversified investment strategy based on the fact that you're going to take an income through drawdown, but you'll effectively be crystallizing your loss there. Or you could choose to buy an annuity, which is what the product was set up to do. But for lots of people, the inflexibility of annuities won't be particularly attractive. So it's a pretty grim set of options for people in this specific situation. And I think it's just an important reminder of why it's so important to engage with your investments and engage with your pensions, particularly as you're approaching the point of taking an income from your pension or on an ongoing basis when you're in drawdown. Because if you're in the wrong types of investments, the wrong type of product, then it could potentially come to bite you. 
So let's stick with that pension theme. We've had some new figures out this week that are warning that more pensioners are going to be pushed into becoming taxpayers, and some of them, I guess, for the first time. So Tom, tell us more about this. You can always tell when I'm on the podcast because of the rolling pensions theme, isn't there? Um, So yes, an interesting analysis, uh, piece of analysis has been conducted by um, Lane Clark and Peacock and specifically Steve Webb. So Steve Webb, the former pensions minister, looking at the state pension and the impact of freezes in tax allowances. Now, as I'm sure listeners will know, we've got this big freeze going on in in income tax thresholds at the moment. It's due to end in 2027. So the personal personal allowance has been frozen at just over £12,500. That higher rate threshold at just over £50,000. Those are the two rates that affect most people. Now, the full flat rate state pension is worth £10,600, roughly. That's subject to income tax, but clearly it's below the personal allowance of £12,570 at the moment. So if you just receive that full flat rate state pension, then it will be subject to income tax, but you'd be taxed at 0% and there wouldn't be a problem. Now, what we're seeing at the moment, of course, is the triple lock increasing the value of the state pension. So next year, we're going to see the state pension go up by 8.5% if historical patterns in the way that the triple lock is applied are repeated again, which will take it well past £11,000. So that means it's touching on that personal allowance amount, but it still wouldn't take it over the personal allowance amount. However, because of the way the state pension system works in the UK and the history of the state pension, there are people who will be entitled to more than the full flat rate amount. So people who had built up an entitlement under the old system where you had a basic state pension and then you were able to build up additional entitlements on top of that may have may have built up a pension that's worth more than the full flat rate amount and more than that full personal allowance. Now, when the system was reformed in April 2016, it took account of your entitlement under the old system when it was calculating what's known as the foundation amount. So there'll be people who reach state pension age before April 2016 who've got a state pension entitlement higher than the personal allowance. And there'll be people who reach state pension age after April 2016 who will also be entitled to state pensions that are higher than the personal allowance. So that's the background. The challenge there is where people who are just entitled to that state pension that's above the above the personal allowance are landed with an income tax bill. Clearly, if your state pension is worth more than £12,570, then you should be paying 20% income tax on that portion that's higher than the personal allowance. But because the revenue doesn't have a, have, have, have a way to charge that income tax to you, which would usually be done through pay-as-you-earn or PAYE, then it's got a challenge in terms of how it collects that tax from you. So if you've got a private pension income, for example, alongside the state pension, then this should be sorted out automatically for you. So that your tax code that's associated with your private pension will be adjusted to take account of any income tax that you owe on your state pension. But if you don't have that PAYE income alongside your state pension, then you'll receive a tax demand from HMRC the year after you've received your state pension. Now, Clearly, that will be a challenge for those in that position, potentially, because if you don't know that that tax demand's coming, you're not used to going through a self-assessment process, for example, then it might be that you're left with a surprise. You may you may end up with tens of pounds, it may be hundreds of pounds of tax that you're that you're hit with from HMRC. Um, 
it's a tricky one because the government says that people shouldn't fill out a self-assessment in order to deal with this challenge. Instead, they should wait to be written to by HMRC, and then they'll tell you what you need to do in order to pay back the tax that you owe. But the main thing that people can do if they're in that specific position, I think, is to to just set aside a little bit of their state pension and figure, figure out what 20% is of the income over that personal allowance, set it aside. And then when HMRC writes to you asking for money, you should have that money ready to go and ready to pay the, the, the income tax demand. So it's quite a complicated one with quite a lot of history, but it's likely to affect a decent number of people. And, uh, and they will be people who tend to be towards the lower end of the income spectrum if they're relying just on their state pension in retirement. And it's a problem that we can see getting worse as the years go on, because if that allowance remains frozen until 2028, as the government has pledged, but that state pension keeps going up, then you're going to get more and more people as each year goes by that are nudged over that threshold, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's the weird thing that we've got at the moment. There's a kind of weird dance between, on the one hand, the triple lock policy, which is clearly very political politically charged something that we've talked about before that's increased rapidly increasing the value of the state pension and on the other hand you've got this frozen tax thresholds policy that's taking money back off people often immediately so it's it's not a particularly coherent way of organizing tax and benefits policy but it's 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 all mired in politics at the moment and i think the the sooner we get the those those thresholds unfrozen the the easier it will all become So let's dive into all the investment news this week with Ryan. First up, we should address the news that the M&G Property Fund is closing. So the funds shrunk to just under £600 million today, having been at £2.5 billion in assets when it suspended dealing in 2019. But Ryan, what's led to the closure now? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one. So long-standing listeners will recall, I'm sure, that uh, we've talked about closing property funds and problems with illiquid assets before on more than one occasion over the last few years. And what M&G property uh, is finding is is essentially that this is a very, very tough market uh, for commercial property. And the trouble that they have uh, in simple terms is that the underlying portfolio, that is, it's a portfolio of physical buildings, um, takes too long to sell to keep pace with the speed that investors want to take out their money. So in, in essence, we've got a mismatch between the liquidity. They're telling investors they can sell on any given day and get their money back. But as we all know from our own experiences, I'm sure, of buying houses over the years, these things take a long time. Uh, and when you've got that mismatch, you run, the, you run a big risk uh, of the fund running out of readily available cash uh, and therefore M&G And let's be honest, they're not the first. We've seen Henderson uh, a couple of years ago. We've seen Aegon over the last 18 months do exactly the same as this, is say, we can't do this anymore. Um, It's not fair on investors, and therefore we need to sell the portfolio and give investors their money back. And that's exactly what M&G have said they're going to do. So do these property funds simply not work on an open-ended basis? And is, is is this the kind of beginning of the end for opening or ended up property funds, do you think? You've hit the nail on the head, Tom. This really is a case of this liquidity mismatch being so fundamental. I mean, it's an accident that has happened on more than one occasion. Uh, now, during the Brexit, in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit referendum, property, property funds suspended because investors withdrew their money very quickly. Then we got to COVID 
uh, and they suspended again because investors withdrew their money very quickly. And so you can see time after time that in times of stress, these funds are just not geared up to cope with people asking for their money back on a quick basis because they physically cannot sell the underlying properties fast enough. Now, the FCA has been looking to try and deal with this over the last couple of years. There was some proposals out there to uh, put a time limit in place so investors would have to give a notice period to get their money back. But those rules never actually come into uh, into place. Uh, and it, in essence, I think that was actually creating a huge amount of uncertainty itself uh, over open-ended daily dealing property funds because it became really difficult for an investor, I think, to justify investing if they didn't know a week later, a month later, or six months later, if the regulator was going to change the rules of the game and you weren't able to get your money back when you wanted it. So it does look like this might be, uh, well, I was going to say the beginning of the end, but I think the beginning of the end, the end of open-ended daily dealing property funds probably started some time ago when those other managers I mentioned announced that they were closing their funds. But it does leave investors in limbo now, which is not an ideal scenario. Um, M&G have talked about the fact that it will take, they suspect, up to 18 months to sell all of the underlying properties. Uh, and if we look at the recent experience of Aegon when they closed their property fund, it took over 18 months there as well. Uh, and of course, the challenge is that anyone in the market for buying a commercial property now knows that M&G is effectively a for seller. They're trying to balance getting the best price for those investors with not letting this process drag on too long. Uh, and that makes the seller uh, in this environment, uh, it puts them in quite a difficult position. Um, so what happens to investors who were maybe in that property fund and want property exposure? What's their best kind of options now? Yeah, I mean, there are other, there are other alternatives uh, out there to use. There are listed property uh, REITs or investment trusts, so REITs, real estate investment uh, investment trusts. So there are those different types of property company that are listed on the stock market and you can buy and sell them on a daily basis. Now, the trade-off for that liquidity, and of course, there is always a trade-off, uh, is that the assets of those property trusts or REITs may not be trading at the full value of the underlying properties. And in fact, if we look at the, if we look at the valuation of some of these big listed property companies today, then the share price you can buy them at is somewhere between maybe 20 and 50% lower than the value of the underlying properties. And that is the trade-off between liquidity uh, and, and access uh, there. Yes, you can buy and sell them, but you can't buy and sell them at the full market price. Now, for some, that might they might view that as a great opportunity to buy. For others, it might well put them off thinking, I'm not prepared to take that that risk. But there are plenty of other solutions out there. Uh, but you have to accept if you want to invest in any illiquid asset, that there is a trade off for being able to access that asset. And very often it comes in the form of the price that you have to pay or the price you get when you come to sell that asset. Really interesting. It feels like a story that we'll be returning to in the coming months and years, and we'll, we'll have to get you back on to, to discuss it when we do. Now, Next up, we've got some figures on expensive investment trackers and how much they are costing investors. Laura, what's the data telling us on this? 
Yeah, so our colleague um, Laith Calaf has been doing some digging on this one and found out that there's a huge gulf between what different providers and products are charging for essentially the same product. So this is looking at trackers where the fund mimics the performance of a particular index or sector. And as we know that they're usually cheaper than funds run by actual kind of human fund managers. But the figures that he has unearthed show that there's a big difference between the charges on some products. And over time, that can cost investors thousands of pounds. So the figures show that the most expensive passive funds can sometimes charge 20 times more than the cheapest option. And that is in the same sector. So for example, we would expect some areas for passives to cost more. So for example, in Asia Pacific X Japan region, trackers on average cost more than, for example, your bog standard UK tracker. But within those UK trackers, there's a vast difference. So the cheapest tracker costs 0.05%. And the most expensive costs 1.06%. So a huge difference there that can really eat into your return. So for someone with £10,000, um, that most expensive one will cost them £106 a year, where the cheapest one will cost them £5 a year. And crucially, I think, to remember with this is there's no chance for outperformance because they're tracking the same index. So with active fund managers where you're paying a human fund manager, you might often think that it's worthwhile paying a bit more for that fund manager's expertise because you think that they're going to outperform and, and kind of give you that money back effectively in outperformance. But there's no chance of that happening with trackers because they're literally just mimicking the performance of the index. Um, Ryan, I know that you guys in your investment team deal with actives and passives, but how do you kind of weigh up the the cost? And is it always a case that you should go for the cheapest? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a really interesting area and one that's been around for some time. Um, and it shows the importance of doing your research when you are investing. Uh, and there are lots and lots of tools available out there to help people uh, do that. Uh, and of course, many listeners will be very experienced in looking at the charges uh, on any investment, but that is that is not the only thing um, to look at uh, here. So when we talk about uh, things like the OCF, the ongoing charges figure, that is one aspect of uh, a passive investment, uh, and it will be make up a big uh, part of the difference in the return uh, between them. But there are other things that are also worth uh, considering, things like tracking error or tracking difference. So how closely do they track the underlying index that they are trying to replicate? Uh, that becomes a very important one. Um, how they actually replicate the index also is very, very important uh, here. So some will do this by physically buying all of the underlying securities. So if you think about the FTSE 100, they will go out and buy all 100 companies in the right proportion. Uh, but other types of trackers may not buy all of the underlying securities. They might buy a sample uh, and they'll get very close, but they won't buy them all. And therefore, again, we get different types of uh, tracking difference. So yes, cost is very important. It's not the only thing. But I think what this research uh, highlights is just how stark the gap is between the cheapest and the most expensive for tools that are essentially designed to do exactly the same job. So choose very, very carefully. I, I would say in the when you're looking at passive investments, typically, the larger investments, the larger funds, are the cheapest. 
there because they get those economies of scale. Uh, so it is worth comparing different fund sizes. It's worth thinking about the different groups uh, and asset managers, uh, the large, the largest ones out there, iShares and Vanguard being two of the largest passive managers uh, in the world. You will find that they've got a very wide range uh, and often will have uh, charges towards the lower end of the peer group. And you can check out um, more of that research that Lathe did by going to Shares Magazine, and it will give you a good ballpark as to whether you're overpaying or not for the different sectors that he's analysed. But also probably worth giving a plug here for the favourite funds list, which Ryan and his team um, man up and on there you can screen for the sector that you want to invest in and you can select passives and that will give you a selection of the options and the team will already have screened that for price and screened out those most expensive ones thanks guys that was really interesting i think some 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 useful practical tips for investors there now Finally, there were some interesting and eye-opening fraud figures that were released today on Wednesday that highlight how much the nation is being scammed. So all quite depressing. But Laura, what did they show us? Yeah, we're not ending on a high positive note here, are we? But um, these are the latest figures out from UK Finance, and they show that criminals stole £580 million in the first half of this year. It's actually a slight drop on the same period last year. Um, But when you delve into the data, they break it down by all of the different types of fraud that are out there. And one of the most popular is called authorised push payment fraud, which is a very, very techie term, often shortened to APP fraud. But essentially, it means where people are tricked into transferring money, whether this is through an online scam or someone calling you up. And there's various different forms of this scam. But the cases of that hit the highest level on record. So the number of cases rising by 22%. And in total, there were 116,000 instances of this fraud just in the first six months of this year. So we can see how widespread these scams and frauds are. There is a bit of a silver lining to it. The bank banking industry introduced a voluntary code of conduct that meant that they had to reimburse victims a few years ago. And that means that now, whilst victims still aren't getting reimbursed for every pound that they lose, we are actually at the highest rate of reimbursement um, since that was launched. So now um, 64p in every pound lost is reimbursed to victims. But that still does mean that there's a third of the money lost to scams Um, victims have to foot the bill for that. Um, One particular area I was interested in was investment fraud. Those numbers have dropped slightly from the last year and the losses have also fallen dramatically. We saw a huge surge in investment fraud during the COVID era. Um, Lots of people were at home, lots of people started investing for the first time or had spare money and it was scammers paradise at that time and lots of people were lured into um, signing up to investment schemes that they thought were legitimate but were scams Um, but it's still a really lucrative area for scammers particularly because it's a scam and a fraud where large sums of money are involved you'll be encouraged to invest thousands of pounds into these schemes whereas some of the other types of fraud involve much smaller amounts of money But I think what ultimately this taps into is that social media means that these frauds and scams can spread so much quicker. If we think back previously, people would have had to have 
you know, physically phoned people up and caught them on the telephone and convinced them. Whereas now you can create social media accounts and posts and spread them to hundreds or thousands of people at the click of a button. And I think it's that area that the regulator and the banking industry um, and also the social media companies are really trying to work out how they solve that problem. Yeah, and a, re- a really difficult problem. So, so while go- government and, and regulators and others are trying to, to figure that out, is, is there anything that savers investors can do to protect themselves from scams? Is it, is it a case of just applying common sense and where something seems too good to be true, it probably is and don't touch it with a barge pole? Or is there, is there anything else that people can do? Yeah, I mean, that's a great rule of thumb. I think be skeptical of anything on social media. If anyone contacts you out of the blue, whether that's on social media via email or the old school way of of calling you up, be really skeptical of it. Do your own independent research. But I think we also have to acknowledge that scammers are really sophisticated now. And there's been quite a few instances of people coming out recently in the newspapers talking about their cases of getting scammed. And these are, you know, highly intelligent people often who work in finance who you would think would be um, immune to these kind of approaches. But actually, it shows that if you're caught at the wrong time, or if you're particularly vulnerable at a particular point in time, it is quite easy to be scammed. And I think the other thing to say with these scam figures is we know that they're the tip of the iceberg. So many people get scammed out of money and don't report it, either because they don't think that they'll be able to get their money back or because they're just really embarrassed and ashamed. I mean, there's a whole section of these um, fraud figures that are around romance scams, which is where people think that they're in a legitimate relationship with someone online, but actually they're just being scammed out of money. And you can see in that instance that lots of people just wouldn't want to report it. But I think that's the big thing that that we would also say is, is to contact Action Fraud or contact your bank if you are scammed. As those figures show, there is a chance that you could get your money back or some of your money back but also it helps the authorities and the banks to know where these scams are happening. Really useful. So be sceptical, apply common sense. And if you are the victim of a scam, then make sure you report it to your bank and the authorities because you might get the money, the money back. I think that's a, a really good note to end on. So that's everything for this week. Join us next week when Dan and Danny will be back with all the latest investing and savings news. And if you want to get in touch, you can via email. It's podcast at ajbell.co.uk. That's podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.